0: You know, I'd be willing to bet that if we took a poll from the people who have been a part of this church for the last 20 years or so, my guess, some of you would say that it's always been this church's commitment to the Bible being the only rule of faith and practice that drew you here. You know, for years, I I found such a great appreciation for this church and how much it looked to the idea that the Bible alone stands as the most important spiritual element in the practice of being a Christian, Um, But what you may not realize, however, is that that commitment is not always that easy to maintain, especially over time. And even more especially when you realize how distracting worldwide Christianity can oftentimes be when it comes to making certain that the centrality of Scripture remains in a church's life. Um, But at the risk of oversimplification, I would submit to you that there really are two off-ramps Uh, in present worldwide Christianity to how it comes to people treating the Bible. Uh, First, on the one hand, I would submit that about one-third of worldwide Christians struggle a lot with Protestants' commitment to Scripture as the only rule and guide of life. And In so doing, what they've done is, is the official doctrine of the Catholic Church began, I would submit, to elevate the function of the Church as standing above Scripture. The Bible is helpful, even vastly important, but when it's all said and done, only the church can speak with the certainty that it's needed if a Christian's wanting to know what to do in life. Now, look, before you think I'm sounding too critical of Roman Catholicism, let's be honest. Oftentimes, when Protestants talk about Scripture alone as a principle of life, what they mean is uh, me and my Bible alone. But the Reformation doctrine of sola scriptura never meant that the Bible is best understood with you alone as its interpreter. Now, the, the, the Protestant reformers stress that the Bible has to be read along with the history of the church, but with the main qualifier being as long as those interpretations are always underneath the ultimate authority of Scripture. On the other hand, though, there's another one-third of worldwide Christianities who, though they don't formally reject the idea that Scripture is an authority, instead I would argue that the practice gets gets subjugated by keeping in front of their churches this necessity to get constant bulletins from the Holy Spirit about the direction that you should take in life. The Bible is essential, yes, but if you really want to know God, then these very ecstatic experiences of the Spirit will lead you into the abundant Christian life or whatever. Look, again, full disclosure, I think Protestant Christianity might learn something from worldwide Pentecostalism, not the least of which is the fact that there indeed is a thing called the Holy Spirit who operates to enliven and empower Christian living at every level. But the difference, however, is that these revelations of the Spirit, they're always intending to point us to Jesus first and never contradict nor even go beyond the clear teaching of Scripture. I, I, used, to re- <laughs> I used to regularly uh, push students who, with a, with a shocking regularity, uh, would approach me with something uh, like, um, Well, you know, Les, God told me to tell you, dot, dot, dot. And I would always respond by saying, look, if it's okay, I'm going to try to master what's in this book first before I start to worry about what it is that God's telling you to tell me to do. But here we are as Protestants. We are the last one-third of worldwide Christianity. And I want to say as boldly as I can that I believe our contribution to whatever we are to make of the church's witness to this world is the belief that Jesus and the Bible is all that we need. That the Bible, therefore, is a living, transforming power in the life of the church. And if we simply keep the vision that the biblical authors had of what the Scripture is, then we will be much better equipped to avoid these off-ramps that constantly tempt to to, uh, uh, change God's people's uh, um, uh, attention. So three ideas as we unpack this passage this morning from 2 Timothy and Hebrews. We want to look, first of all, at the God who speaks. I want to contrast God's words with our words and then look for some application as we see God's words and our lives. But let's take, let's take that first point about the God who speaks. Uh, you know, when I was a campus minister, I've mentioned this before, I loved to pose this question to freshmen when they came to freshman Bible study about how they dealt with doubts in the Bible. And I would say, if you could have any evidence that you wanted that would make your doubts go away, what would you be? What would it be? And the answers were typical. Seeing a miracle was usually one that would top the list. Uh, I had somebody ask for a time machine one time, go back into time. Uh, One one person would oftentimes say, um, inexplicable healings of sick loved ones would really convince them, you name it. But what I always tried to stress in those moments is the fact that, look, if there actually is a God, isn't it true that everyone wants to hear from him? Isn't that true? For some obvious reasons, yes, but mostly just to find out what he'd say. And for still others, to find out why it is that he does what he does. In other words, there is a longing in every human heart, an emptiness, if you will, that longs to be filled with the knowledge of how things work. How does it all fit together? And what is my place in the world? Everyone wants to know that. I spoke with a student in my early days who posed this question, that if, that if God wants people to believe in him so badly, then why doesn't he make himself more obvious? Why all the hiddenness and invisibility? In other words, we want to hear from God, but we think we don't know how to. Over the years, though, I, I, I've come to believe that what, what's actually closer to the truth is that we don't like how he's actually revealed himself which is where 2 Timothy 3 comes in. Because Paul is exhorting Timothy, his his pastoral understudy, to stick with the sacred writings. These alone, in verse 14 he says, will be able to make you wise. In other words, this is what's going to help you navigate your life. Why? Simply put, because the Bible reveals a God who speaks. This is how Paul puts it in verse 16. All scripture is breathed out by God. It's actually a very literal translation of the Greek word there, breathe out. And what it means is that when God speaks, he doesn't do so through these dramatic experiences or or even bizarre circumstances, nor is it through some mystical, unexplainable impression that, you know, just, just came over me and I just knew what he wanted me to do. No, God revealed himself to And in and through what were known as prophets. Jesus being chief among them. And when they took up their office, they gave thoughts not just that were about God, but that actually were God's words. So that in the Bible, God goes to these certain people, the prophets and the apostles, and he reveals his words. In other words, what we have is is we have a God who shows himself through words. Words and through affirmations, through, through propositional statements. Uh, th- think about uh, Acts 1.16. Remember when Peter was talking to the crowd there at the temple after the Holy Spirit has fall- fallen on everybody, and he's summing up the situation in which these first Christians had found themselves, and he says this. He says, Brothers, the Scriptures had to be fulfilled which, through the Holy Spirit, spoke long ago through the mouth of David. Did you catch that? In other words, Peter says that when I read the Psalms, I'm not reading David's words about God. I'm reading God's words through David. Now look, before we move on, we have to settle this in our mind. If I want to hear from God, stick with the Bible. That's the main lesson from this because the Bible's authors saw this book as being the singular way in which people can come to know God and to know his mind on things, to hear from him. You know, there are a lot of you that came and approached me with um, questions about last year's most popular podcast that came from our friends over at Christianity Today on the rise and fall of the Mars Hill Church. My guess is lots of you listen to it. It's a wildly popular story about Mars Hill Church uh, up there in in, uh, the Northwest. And their very charismatic leader, Mark Driscoll. And in this spot, I really don't have anything to add to what that series sort of unpacked. Except to say this, that when the moment when Driscoll began to peddle to his congregation messages that he had individually received from God, I can tell you at that moment things were inevitably going to get weird. That's just the deal. And that's my premise. The more your pastor starts getting private revelations from God, that are not rooted in the Bible, the more off the rails your church is likely to get. I feel like I've seen this over and over and over again in my day. In other words, when God's people want to hear from the God who speaks, they consult the Bible and they stick with that. So much so that every other decision that a church makes that's aside from that direct revelation is up to discussion and wisdom, like we talked about last week. So that's my first point, is that we have in the Bible a God who speaks through the Bible. Secondly, though, I want to contrast God's words, the difference between God's words and our words. So combine what Paul is saying to Timothy with the writer of Hebrews chapter 4, when he says, for the word of God is living and active. So not only is the scripture God's word, it's also, he says, a living thing. That is, God's words, they do things, they enact things, they they create things. God's words take up space. They always land with a purpose. Protestant reformer Martin Luther would put it this way, he says, a man's word is a little sound that flies into the air and soon vanishes. But the word of God is greater than the heaven and the earth, yea, greater than death and hell, for it forms part of the power of God and endures everlastingly." Look, (laughs) compare that description with God's Word with our words. Human words don't take up space. They don't last. Human words are relatively sophisticated air vibrations (laughs) that are picked up by your relatively sophisticated air vibration reception things that you call ears, and that's all they are. And then they're forgotten. Let me see if I can illustrate this. Let's imagine that our children's ministry coordinator, Elizabeth Adrian, has been working on Vacation Bible School this last year. And her and her crew have put together this amazing party to finish off Vacation Bible School, the biggest outdoor party that Oxford's ever seen. Rides, games, food, the whole works right in the field just to the east of us here. But all of a sudden, as she looks out across the field, she sees a storm brewing. Large storm, it's a bad one. So in desperation, she races out to the edge of the the field up here and she begins to scream at the storm. She shouts at it, please don't ruin all of our plans. But of course, nothing happens. Why? Because when a human being speaks into the air, it doesn't do anything. In that sense, human words are not the same as deeds. Our words are not living in that regard, but God's words are different, are they not? You could take Genesis 1, for instance. When God creates the heavens and the earth, (laughs) notice that the passage does not say, God said, let there be light, and then he went and made the light. It's not what it says. No, he spoke and it happened. If you and I say, let there be light, we have to walk over and turn the light switch on. But God's words are the same as actions. This is actually what the phrase God speaks by divine fiat means. There was something that was created purely by someone vocalizing their will. That's the God of the Bible. Take another one, by the way, Isaiah fifty-five eleven is a famous one which says that God's word never, quote, returns to him void. What does that mean? Well, it means that when God speaks a word, it's never empty. It never rots. It never falls to pieces. So much so that God's words are the shape of reality. You know what is real and made up in life because of whether or not God said it. So when God comes along in the Bible, in the 10th commandment, it says, You shall not covet anything that belongs to your neighbor. That's the 10th commandment. He isn't like the vacation Bible school staff calling for a storm to stop. That is, that commandment has now defined reality. It is reality. And that law now defines the structure of reality. More on that in just a second. Now, by the way, though, Jesus believes every bit of this. There's a place in John 10, 35, where Jesus is talking about how he and the Father are of the exact same essence. And as a little throwaway comment he says in the midst of that, and the scriptures cannot be broken. Hmm, that's a weird way of talking. I mean, what he means, though, is the Scripture's words will always have an effect. There is no way that the Bible's words could ever be ineffectual. He says something similar, by the way, in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 18. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. (laughs) What does that mean? Well, he's saying exactly what the Hebrews writer is saying, and Moses and Paul for that matter, that the Bible, because it's God's Word, is the active agent working in the universe. Every one of God's words will stand in the end. They are not vague abstractions. Look, I want to get very quickly to the implications of this, but the theologians refer to this principle as something we call the sufficiency of Scripture. And that doctrine means that the Bible is your greatest need. Your greatest spiritual problem right now is not going to be cured necessarily by a book on Three Steps to a Better Prayer Life or How to Love Your Neighbor Better as Yourself or any other perfectly good and right topic. What we need right now is to immerse myself in the pages of Scripture on a regular and faithful way and studying how it is that I might apply and live by every word. Why? Well, that brings me to my last point. And that is this contrast between God's word and our lives. It's equally as important as his. Because my last point is simply this. The Bible unlocks for God's people the most dynamic change agent that there could possibly be in your life. Let me say it this way. If you joined this church, as an action that was motivated to maintain the status quo in your life, uh, you may have come to the wrong place. Why? Because here we have pledged ourselves to live by the Bible. And if you make the Bible your sole foundation in life, what happens is, is things start to happen. It just happens. Um, So much so, uh, Tim Keller once said, I thought this was genius, that if you commit yourself to the Bible, there is good news and there is bad news. Let's start with the bad news first, so we can end on a good note, right? Bad news. The bad news, if the Bible is what it is, is that the Word of God in the end simply cannot be resisted. That's the bad news. Say it this way. The Word of God is going to break you, one way or the other, because it will always do its work. Jeremiah 23, 29 says, Is not my word like a fire, declares the Lord, and like a hammer that breaks a rock in pieces? What this means is, is that in the end, disobeying God's word is actually doing more harm to you than it is to anybody else or to anything else. Look, go back to our commandment, not to covet anything that belongs to our neighbor. What Jesus is saying is that law, That law about not coveting is never going to pass away until it is all fulfilled. And that command is not going to be, stop being relevant to me just because I'm trying to ignore it. That command is the fabric of reality because it's God's word. So how could I ignore it? And for that reason, that law is going to break you. broke the apostle Paul. It's going to break you. Why? Because of this. In the short run, let's say you say to yourself, you know what, that's a really good point, Les. The Ten Commandments are a great rule for life. I'm going to put it on a plaque and I'm going to hang it up in my room and doggone it, I'm going to take that Tenth Commandment in and I'm going to decide to build my life upon it. I'm going to be more content in my life. You know what's going to happen? <laughs> that law is going to break your pride, I promise you. Because the more you try to obey it, the more humble it's going to make you. Why? Why? <laughs> Because it's going to show you that you have to be content with whatever God has given you. That's what that command says. Be content at every single moment. But it's not going to take you very long to suddenly realize how much you hate your life. And how much you look at other people's lives as having had the better path. Worse, you hate that anyone else is trying to tell you what it is that you should do. If I only had more stuff if I only had a better spouse, if I only had a better job, if I only had more money, if I only had more (laughs) well-adjusted children. What is that, by the way? What's a well-adjusted child? And we spend our entire lives if, 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 suddenly we hear this command and we realize that what my real desire is, is for me to be in charge of my own life, for me to be the sovereign. But here's the deal, I am not a Christian until I, in the midst of that moment of brokenness, go to God and confess that only he can be someone who makes me content. The word of God is a hammer that turns us into submissive people who go to God solely on the basis of grace. Because we know that's the only posture we could possibly survive in. Now, of course, there is an alternative. Those are for the people who decide to take the law in and try to do it and keep it. The other possibility is just to ignore it. And, of course, if we try to do that, if what Jeremiah and Moses and Paul and Jesus are saying are true, it means that one day those commands are going to break you still and they're going to judge your life. How? Well, okay, go ahead. Try and live your life in the midst of your discontent. Learn what it means to pine year after year after year, waiting till you get what you deserve. See what that does to your family as you break your family with your pride. See what that does to your marriage as your expectations soar far beyond anything your, your spouse is able to achieve. See what that does to your own mind as your psyche cracks under the persistent strain of discontent. Here's the truth. Discontent is going to destroy everything that is good in your relationships. Do you want to know why? Because the Scriptures cannot be broken. They are as certain as they can possibly be. By the way, this principle works all the other Ten Commandments as well. The more you try to break them, the more they break you. Because they're the fabric of reality. But the point point of this whole thing is this. You can either let the word of God in you now and let it break you now and humbly send you to Jesus for grace alone. Or it will eventually break your life. And as it turns out, one day your soul, we cannot escape God's words because they will not return to him empty. They will either extract humility from us or they will destroy us. That's the bad news. But I promise good news, right? Good news is this simple. Keller says it is to be found in 1 Peter 1.23, and it says this. For you, speaking to God's people, have been born again, not of a perishable seed, but of imperishable. Ready for this? Through the living and enduring word of God. That's the kicker. What that means is, is that when you take the word in and you let it have its way with you, humbling you, assembling you to Jesus for grace alone, what happens to you then is you become an imperishable person. That's the promise. And that is, everything you do, in accordance with that word, will never fall away. You have immeasurable security in life. Everything that you do will count. It will be eternally significant. And you know how I know? Well, take Jesus. Jesus, God's son. What did he live his life by? Think about that question. I would submit to you that every time you see Jesus facing a question or beginning kind of trouble or under some strenuous issue, he's always quoting the Bible. Do you notice this? In Matthew 4, when he's being tempted by the devil, you know, after starving himself for all that time, every response he gives to the devil begins with, it is written. You get later on when Jesus is being arrested and a guard comes and seizes him and you know swashbuckling Peter comes and like cuts the guard's ear off. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew 26? He says, "Do you not do, do you think I cannot call on my Father and he will at once put at my disposal 12 legions of angels." And when you're a kid you read that and you're like, "Oh, I wish he would have done it." But look what he says next. He says, "But how then would the scriptures be fulfilled?" that say it must happen this way. In other words, Jesus says that he is going to do what the word of God says he must do, and that is to die. Even Jesus was leaning on God's word so that he could accomplish his mission. How about when Jesus was on his way to the cross? Remember this, what he says to the women on the roadside in Luke 23? He says, daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me. Weep for yourselves and for your children. They will say to the mountains, fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. What's he talking about? Ready for this? He's quoting Hosea 10.8. The Bible's coming out of him. Nothing compares to when he's on the cross. He's on the cross experiencing something that no no human creature has ever experienced when he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Y'all, That's a quote from Psalm 22. In other words, the more you squeezed Jesus, the more the Bible came out. When you're in enormous pain, when you're at the end of your rope, isn't it interesting that whatever comes out of your mind at that point, that's the deepest point of your life. You have found what it is you count on. You have found the center of your being, as it were, when you find yourself in temptation, conviction, spiritual depression, whatever. That's your life source. For Jesus, it was the very Word of God. And here's the kicker. And because that was true, because Jesus lived by it, Nothing he ever did passed away. Jesus was living and active and continues to be, by the way. And therefore, he won for us this imperishable salvation. I love the way Peter puts that. It is an imperishable salvation because it was born of an imperishable seed, which among other things means that it cannot be messed up even by us. It is as inevitable as God's command for the light to appear, and it appeared. It is true by the force of his word. When you take the word of God into your life, it doesn't matter what happens to you. Heaven and earth may pass away, but you will never pass away. You will never turn up empty. You will never return void. Look, I I don't know whether this is an age thing. People around the office are getting tired of me talking about this. This is an age thing, but the older that you get, do you feel that nagging question kind of cropping up whether it is true that anything I do matters? Does anything I do matter? Has anything I've ever done mattered? I'm betting I'm not the only one who's ever felt that. But here's the deal. The Bible is living. It's active. It changes you, yes, but you know what? It also establishes you so that whatever I do in accordance with this book will ring throughout the halls of eternity forever. There's a handful of men at a prison this week that will ring throughout the halls of eternity forever because Jesus said to do it. Jesus said in Matthew 10, 42, that even a little cup of water that's given to a needy person who's in need will never be forgotten. Don't you long for that? Because if you do, then stick with this book because the Bible says that it'll make you an eternal person. Wouldn't that be wonderful? Let's pray. And Lord Jesus, would you lead us into that? Walk us through that that insight, that realization of whatever it is that has encrusted around us where we look at the Bible like it's helpful. We look at the Bible like it's vaguely interesting. Or we look at the Bible as if there's no way in the world that I'll ever understand it. It's too complicated. But rather, Father, would we come to your word expectantly, longingly? Yes, curiously. We don't understand it. We want to know more. But in the end, may you come and make us the kind of people that heal your world and ring throughout the halls of eternity. Would you do that? Abide with us, we pray. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.